0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Begolke here with John Mitchell. This week, we're previewing the Pac-12 as we continue our 2019 season previews. First, we're going to be looking at the Pac-12 North and then diving into the Pac-12 South in our second segment before looking at the Pac-12 race, how things are going to finish, and uh, whether or not anybody can make the college football playoff this year. Uh, so before we dive in, how are things going for you this week, John?
1: Going good. I'm really excited about this week, honestly. I know the Pac-12 is really your forte, being a, a, a at least a current West Coaster for a few more weeks, I suppose, but... Um, I'm really intrigued by the conference as a whole this year. So I'm fired up to kind of dive in and give, give my thoughts and pick your brain on this because it looks like a really fascinating year out West.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm still out here for the next couple of weeks, at least while we're getting to talk about this, it just, uh, it feels right being where I'm at right now to talk about this particular conference race. Um, so yeah, diving in, we were going to begin with the PAC 12 North this week, Last week, we obviously looked team by team. So, you know, looking from the bottom up in those standings, I think the team to really start with is Oregon State. The past couple years, the Beavers have um, obviously not been near where we've seen their peaks uh, have been in the, you know, not so distant past. At the same time, I think it's really interesting that as soon as this conference went from the Pac-10 to the Pac-12, is when Oregon State really started to see their downturn. You know, that's that's around the same time that Mike Riley leaves leaves Corvallis and heads toward Lincoln, and uh, it seems like everything just kind of fell off the rails ever since then. So yeah, you know, it's it, Jonathan Smith is uh, still the head coach there, and I think it's. Uh, It's going to be an interesting year for him, especially with all of the other teams in this division that are as good as they are. Um, So I guess my big question to you, John, is do you think there's any chance that Oregon State can get out of the cellar this year and be anywhere other than sixth in that division?
1: I think if you're talking about the Pac-12 North, you've got a pretty clear top four in some order. I think it's really wide open. And I think most people would agree that it'll be Cal and Oregon State at the bottom of the division. But I still think there's probably a decent-sized gap between five and six this year. I still think Oregon State is demonstrably the, the worst team um, in the in the Pac-12 North, if not the worst team overall in the entire conference. They were still really bad last year. And I, it's funny you mentioned. I was thinking when I was doing some prep for this week's podcast, just kind of an interesting thought exercise for me is what happens if Mike Riley never makes the ill-fated decision to kind of chase the, the dream of, you know, winning big time at a power school, like a Nebraska, you know, a blue blood like that. What if he stays in Corvallis? Because you're right. It isn't that long ago where almost on a yearly basis, it felt like the civil war was really one of the biggest games in the country that really had a lot to do with the pac 10 race. Then So it's kind of fascinating to see what would have happened if he would have stayed put for him, obviously, because it didn't work out at Nebraska. And then ever since he's really left Corvallis, you've seen a really big swan dive for the Beavers. But I do think they made some tangible signs of progress in year one under Jonathan Smith. They were more competitive in some games. They eked out a Pac-12 win last year on the road at that at Colorado. So that was, you know, a massive step forward for them. So, you know, there's. I don't think they're good enough this year to, you know, even sniff bowl eligibility. But they got some interesting pieces. Jamar Jefferson at running back as a freshman last year had nearly fourteen hundred yards, so he's a building block for that offense. If they can get some more production at quarterback, if Jake Lutton can step in and kind of, after getting his sixth year of eligibility and <clears throat> take a step forward as well. They've got the bell cow running back that you can really lean on, but they really got to take a step defensively because offensively they were not good, but they were serviceable offensively last year, right? Like they weren't an embarrassment, but defensively they were just 129th in total defense last year in the country. That's where they've got to really take the step forward if they want to have any semblance of not just even potential bowl eligibility, but climbing out of the cellar in the entire Pac-12.
0: Yeah, well, and I think, you know, last year you saw a really young defense. And this year, they're really kind of banking on some more experience making a difference there. In terms of uh, FBS teams, they're third in the country in terms of returning defensive production. And so I think that's really the big hope there in Corvallis is that those players that, you know, sort of stumbled and fumbled their way through, through 2018, at least got you know their baptism by fire, and this year they take that next leap forward. I'm I think that's really sort of the the ultimate goal there for Smith and crew. So yeah, I'm totally with you there. Where you know it, it's not necessarily the offense that needs to take that next step. It's it's certainly on the defensive side of the ball. And you know that said, I think with that much experience returning, it is it, it is a possibility, but. Yeah, I think this year you're looking at another, you know, um, another season that's far from bowl eligibility, which, you know, Beavers fans won't necessarily like, and, you know, full disclosure, as a Duck alumnus, that certainly doesn't make me sad, Um at the same time, I, I think a stronger Oregon State team makes that rivalry that much more exciting. So on the other side, Absolutely. you know, as much as I like seeing a rival sort of squirm, um, you know, I, I would like to see Oregon State make these next, you know, make a leap in these next couple of years. I don't think it's happening this year, but I think it it is definitely something that, you know, Smith has them on the right course, so...
1: It's also fun, too, when your rival school is good because it makes beating them that much more satisfying. You know, there's no you can't take that much satisfaction in beating Oregon State right now as Oregon. Like it's still a rivalry game, but that's what you're supposed to do. Like no one's shocked by that, you know. Totally. So I think, Zach, I think we're probably both in agreement that Oregon State's in the cellar. Yeah. Right. Um, in that division in the north. I'm guessing we're both in agreement that fifth place is probably going to be Cal. Yes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, the Golden Bears, they're they're a good team. Like, that's the other part of this. I think if you if you drop them in another division in college football, that wasn't quite as deep as the Pac-12 North is this year. um, You know, they'd have a chance at being second or third in the division. Um, you know, you could plop them in even you know I'm trying to think like the the ACC coastal or the you know the Big Ten West they they'd have more of a fighting chance there but I think just because you know both Washington schools and then Oregon and Stanford are that stacked this year it just makes it that much harder to fight that uphill battle but you know they went bowling last year they're the, they're they're the type of team who's You know, ceiling is probably seven or eight wins. They have the potential, you know, if that offense looks um, better this year to to steal a win or two here or there against teams that are nominally considered to be the better team. I think they can pull off one of those sort of upsets. But, yeah, I'm with you there in terms of there's just some, you know, some missing pieces there for me in terms of the offense last year wasn't that far off. You know, I I think there were some mistakes you saw, especially with, um, you know, turnovers without, with, you know, an inability to complete drives as well, you know, having to settle for field goal attempts rather than getting into the end zone and just, uh, you know, you, you convert a few more of those and, and things will look up for, for the golden bears, but Yeah, I I, I think the big thing for them, just like Oregon State, is how well will their defense hold up against some of these other teams in in the division. Um, You have a couple of really fairly high-powered offenses. You have a couple of really talented quarterbacks in the division. And, um, you know, between uh, Washington, Oregon, and Stanford alone, those three are all, you know— experienced quarterbacks that we have come to know over the years and then while Washington State is you know transitioning uh to you know a new era there Mike Leach is always going to have an interesting you know offense to watch the you know the mad pirate isn't going to disappoint with you know somebody's going to emerge to, to throw for at least 4,800 yards. It's just the way it works out there in Pullman every year. So
1: Yeah, uh, the thing that, you know, Cal last year, their offense was bad. Their defense was among the best and not just the Pac-12, the entire country. They were fantastic on defense. That's really a testament, too, because a few years, it's not that long ago they were struggling mightily on that side of the ball, and that was the whole point of um, bringing in Justin Wilcox, was yeah. his pedigree as a defensive coach. And the work he's been able to do on that side of the ball has been incredible. They're not going to be in the race for the Pac-12 North, but they're going to be a fun spoiler team this year, just like they were last year. You know, they they upset what Washington last year, 12 to 10. I mean, they pulled off a road win at USC. I know that's not a huge deal or anything with the way USC was last year. But, you know, they won some You know, pretty impressive games. They almost pulled off a win at Washington State last year as well. So their defense will keep them competitive in every game. It'll be interesting to see that, you know, they brought in Devin Modster as a transfer, but it's still, at least after spring, looked like Chase Garber's job to lose. You know, he started as a freshman for them last year, had some growing pains, but looked really good in the spring. So if he can kind of take that sophomore leap and, you know, become the quarterback that, you know, he has the potential to be, then I think Cal could be you know, maybe a year away from being a real thorn in the side of everybody. But, I mean, they're going to be a a fun spoiler team, I really think. And, you know, they've got a really good pull off some pretty big ones. The problem for Cal is, like, scheduling to break into that top four. I mean, three, they go at Washington, they got to go to Oregon, and they have to go to Stanford. So even if they make progress on the offensive side of the ball, that's an uphill climb to climb in the division when you have to play those three teams on the road.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to bring up. It is just a really kind of murderer's row of of road games on that that schedule and I think that's probably gonna be the the hiccup that prevents them as well from having a a really, you know, deeper impact in the division than just playing the, the spoiler rule here and there.
1: You know, if we're moving forward with that, Zach, to me, it looks like the general consensus for fourth has been I think Washington State has been kind of the general consensus. I don't know how you feel about the the Cougars, but I do think it's interesting that it feels like every year, and you were just touching on it for a second about Mike Leach quarterbacks, it feels like every year he loses one, whether it was Luke Falk, now it's Gardner Minshew. Everyone just goes ahead and counts out Mike Leach's Cougars out there um, in Pullman. And that seems to be the case to me again this year. You're talking about a team coming off a program record 11 wins last year, mm-hmm. uh, a snow-filled Apple Cup away from playing for a Pac-12 championship and a potential spot in the Rose Bowl, right? Yeah. So they're to me, I mean, they're being discounted again this year. A lot of people thinking they'll take a step back. Obviously, it'll be difficult for Gage Guber to replicate the – just amazing success. One of the most fast, like fun stories in college football last year was Gardner men rise from little known East Carolina quarterback to going out there and leech his offense and being just a godsend. Like it was just a perfect marriage of coach and quarterback last year uh, for Washington state. But I would say, you know, count out the mad pirate at your own risk, right? They still got a lot of talent returning. They took some pretty good strides defensively last year were a top 40 defense in a lot of categories last year, which is a huge step for a leech coach team. Uh, so you can't really discount the, the work that Tracy Clays has done with that defense. Um, I don't know that they are good enough to overtake uh, the division and you know compete again for a Pac-12 championship, like as close as they got last year. But I, would be, I think it's stupid to just completely discount the Cougars this year, like I- a lot seem to be doing.
0: I completely agree, you know, and I think a big part of it is, you know, we look at, especially in Mike Leach offenses, who's the quarterback this year? How, you know, where are they at? Have they been tested? And, you know, obviously, uh, Gage Gobert, the uh, East Carol, or the East Carolina that was last year's quarterback, the Eastern <laughs> Washington transfer, you know, he's obviously gotten things done at the FCS level. He know at a program like Eastern Washington, you're one of the top programs in the country at that level. So he's had the experience of pressure situations. And um, so I don't think that's going to be a big deal. What really kind of makes me feel even better about his chances walking in is just how much is back for the offense besides losing Menchu. Um, You know, pretty much every receiver of note is back for that team. They've got four of their five offensive line starters back. Um, So he's going to get good protection. Um, He's going to have plenty of people to toss the ball around to. And um, it's going to be, as you said, as we both have said here, another just offensively action-packed season for for the Cougars. Um, I think it's something we've come to know and expect. And well, I'm skeptical about their chances to finally, you know, get over that hurdle and get to a Pac-12 championship game like they've looked so close to doing the past couple of years. I still think they're, you know, very clearly a bowl team. They're very clearly looking at, well, 11 wins might be steep this year. I think nine might be very possible with their only losses coming to the teams ahead of them in the division. Um, So, so that's, um, you know, and I think it really does hinge on how does Gobrid, you know, um, mesh with the rest of everybody, but we've seen transfers work out there before we've seen quarterbacks sort of just plug and play in that system. And so I, yeah, I'm with you where I'm really not that, you know, concerned about how that works out.
1: Right. No, I agree. And I, the big question I think for them this year is can Mike Leach finally solve the Chris Peterson puzzle? Yeah. I mean, he's been completely baffled by Chris Peterson defenses for, you know, every year he's been there, they've, he's 0 and four, zero and 5, whatever it is against Chris Peterson at this point. And their offense has just been stuck in mud. You know, you usually look at a leech coach team as being able to light up the scoreboard. They haven't been able to do that against Washington. And that's what stood in the way last year of them getting to the PAC 12 title game. So it'll be interesting to see if they can finally solve that puzzle. They got to go to Seattle this year. So it's interesting, but I think that's a good segue into the Huskies. Um, And I do think this is a four-team race. I really do. I think Washington State, Washington, Stanford, Oregon all have very good shots at the division crown. And for Washington, the big storyline's been for, you know, even since the beginning of last year is Jacob Eason, right? Mm -hmm. And with Jake Browning's struggles last year, and, you know, he got a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism that was deserved. But at the end of the day, Washington still won 10 games, still won the Pac-12 still played a competitive Rose Bowl against Ohio State. So it's hard to you know, fault him too much. But if Eason can elevate the quarterback play as significantly as some believe he can be, because some are touting him as a potential first-round pick, a potential trio of first-round picks coming out of this division with yeah. K.J. Costello and Justin Herbert from Oregon. So that's the fascinating thing, is you've got three potential first-round quarterbacks in this division. And if Eason can take that next step, and if Peterson can figure out things defensively this year, we are talking about having to replace nine starters on defense, which is a tall task even for, you know, even for a guy like Peterson who consistently fields top 25 defenses, then Washington's got a really good shot at not just potentially winning the Pac-12 again, but maybe getting back to the college football playoff.
0: I, I obviously would not love to see that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Ducks don't necessarily want to see Huskies get into the the promised land. Um, but yeah, I, I think this team does have that potential. You mentioned the churn on defense, and that's been the past couple of years for this team. It seems like they've lost more than half of their defensive starters for each of the past three years and have either, you know, maintained their their level of play, or even elevated it the following year, um, which has been again a testament to Peterson, a testament to the staff that he has, and um, you know just a testament to the way that they approach defense um, against Pac-12 teams. Um, But yeah, I'm with you. It's one of those things with that, you know, the Jake Browning, Miles Gaskin era, I think is the way we're going to look at these days, you know, that four year chunk of time in Seattle. And, you know, given that those, you know, those guys were the core, you know, part of the core of the group that did go to the college football playoff as sophomores, it, it it is one of those things where it feels like, if not regression, at least um, opportunity wasted or, or or something like that. I you know I, I'm remiss to say that somebody failed if they got to go to a Rose Bowl, but in this case, it's just one of those um, you know situations where in in this era, there are bigger prizes, and it, it looked like a team that could be going to the college football playoff every year with those guys when Browning was throwing to John Ross and, and that right. that core group of guys. But but the thing is, is they just haven't had consistency at receiver, I think has been one of the biggest things for them the past couple of years. So um, it'll be interesting to see how Eason, you know, connects with his core group of pass catchers and how they're able to, you know, find synergy this season.
1: Yeah, and you know I, the coaching staff at Washington just consistently impresses me. Like you were just mentioning, they have a revolving door of defenders every year. They're turning out to the NFL and every year it seems like they're just as good if not better than the year before. I think this is their tallest task, but let me ask you this, do you think Chris Peterson is maybe the most underrated coach in college football because I feel like consistently his name is left off when people are talking about the top five coaches in college football. And I think his name absolutely belongs in there.
0: I think if you're not putting it in there, you're doing it at your own peril. Uh, He has definitely proven both, you know, before he came to Seattle, he obviously had one of the storybook runs in college football history at Boise state. Um, I forget what the exact record was, but they, you know, over a decade span, when they were looking at the Kellen Moore era, you know, sort of, As the the fulcrum for that period of of Peterson's time there in Boise, they were the winningest program in college football over a ten year span, and and that you know while you can talk about the level of competition you get to play with you know and play against Boise State always punched up as well like they did not avoid tough non-conference games while Peterson was there and they won those games. Like that's that's cool. the other part of it is they played power schools and they played them close to that, that power competition's home base, you know, whether it was an actual road game or it was a neutral site game like the one they have coming up in Florida State this year. Uh, um, or in Jacksonville against Florida State. Um, But, you know, right there in in their opponent's backyard. Don't shy away from that sort of thing. And, you know, Washington brings that same sort of mentality to their games. Um, And I think that's why Peterson also gets overlooked, is he definitely plays his teams to, to even, even if they are the juggernaut in the conference in that given year, they still play that underdog role, that Cinderella role that, you know, really defined his Broncos tenure.
1: Right. And I mean, I think it's important to note when we talk about how they might've underachieved a little bit the last couple of years, look at their losses last year, you know, they went 10 and four, their biggest margin of defeat was five points. They lost by five against Auburn, overtime by three to Oregon lost by two to Cal, and then lost by five to Ohio state. How in each of those games, you're talking about one play here or there that could have swung those and Washington could have been a team you're talking about in serious consideration for the playoff last year.
0: Yeah, undoubtedly. I think it's a really great point to bring up just very competitive team. And I think we're going to see a lot of tight games again this year. Um, And I I think both of their games against Oregon and against Stanford um, you know they get Oregon at home they have to go down to the farm uh, to play the Cardinal but I, I think both of those games will probably end up being one score games again where you see a really tight tight contest all around right
1: yeah I agree and then you're you know, if we move forward with that, I think Stanford's probably the next team we want to talk about. We'll save your ducks for last. I, I think the, that's probably
0: – that. I that save the best for last. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> What's co- interesting to me, at least for Stanford, is last year didn't really look like your normal Stanford team, if, if that makes sense. Like, you're talking about a Stanford team that for years, whether it was with David Shaw or before that with Jim Harbaugh, prided themselves on being able to just mash you to pieces with their running game, right? Mm-hmm. They were consistently one of the best rushing offenses in college football, whether, you know, it was Toby Gerhardt back when he was toting the rock and just mm-hmm. mashing into everybody and stuff like that, on down to to Bryce Love. And then last year, and Christian McCaffrey, I don't want to forget him, but last year that all changed. You know, their offensive line struggled to gel. Bryce Love struggled coming back from injury. And they finished 123rd nationally in rushing offense, which is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah. But if you want to talk about underrated coaches, too, David Shaw still managed to pull out nine wins with that team, despite the fact that they finished 85th overall in total offense and 78th overall in total defense. That should not have been a nine-win team last year.
0: No. (laughs) No, it, it really is a testament to how good a coach Shaw is. And I think he's another one. You mentioned Peterson. Uh, in terms of underrated coaches and while I wouldn't necessarily put Shaw in the top five coaches in the country I think it's very easy to make a case for him in the top 10 or top 15 of coaches around the FBS Um, you know because once Harbaugh left town it was a program that could have very easily torpedoed back to irrelevance where they were right. You know, at the beginning of Harbaugh's tenure. And as they have been so many times throughout their history, this is a program. I think
1: a lot of people expected that.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Undoubtedly. I, you know, I was living in Eugene at the time and we were very much like, great. Get Harbaugh out of town. Like no problem. We can handle having the Cardinal be a little bad again. And, David Shaw didn't let that happen. If anything, he's proven himself to, you know, be even more consistent than Harbaugh was as a coach. He's the the type of coach where you might not get that absolutely like dazzling storybook run um, as you saw a couple of times with Harbaugh. But, it, you know, I, I think a lot of that as well was a measure of having Andrew Luck as your quarterback. Um, so, you know, we we talk about chicken and egg situations. Um, given what's ha- you know, transpired with Harbaugh since, he was great in the NFL. Like, let's put it that way. Harbaugh's proven that he's a good coach wherever he's at. And I'm, you know, Michigan as well is a tough place to coach. So I'm not going to necessarily look at the rest of his tenure and say that he's a bad coach. I'm not trying to say that by any means. But I I, I think...
1: He's no David Shaw.
0: No, he's no David Shaw. Which is <laughs> quite a remarkable thing to say in itself.
1: Yeah. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's go ahead and and hot take it. I yep. think we both agree David Shaw is a better football coach than Jim Harbaugh.
0: Yeah. I. I, I yep. Put it down. Put it down on recording. We've we've got it down uh, for the world to hear because that that's really where where I stand on that. Shaw, and not no knock on Harbaugh. Shaw has just been that consistently good. You know, his teams are always, as you said, you know, they're always ready for a party in the backfield on defense. They're always, you know, ready to go on offense and not always, as you said, ready to go in the exact same ways. KJ Costello when the you know, running game sort of tapered off last year, stepped up, he really did. And proved why he's looked at as a first-round hopeful this year um, among that deep, deep group of quarterbacks in the division. And, um, you know, I, as much as we talk about just that hard running, you know, Costello really stepped up in uh, a way that, we hadn't seen since Luck for that team, you know, guys like Kevin Hogan were good for Stanford, perfectly great, you know, perfectly decent quarterbacks in that system, exactly who they needed at the time, but they weren't, sure. they weren't going to transcend and, and, you know, absolutely take over games themselves. And I think Costello right. gives them that kind of weapon that they hadn't had since Luck.
1: Yeah, guys like Hogan are game managers. They're not going to lose the game for you, but they're also not going to grab the reins and win it for you either. Totally. And last year, K.J. Costello had to go out and win games for Stanford, and that's what he did, despite the fact that there wasn't a ton of help around him. What will be interesting this year is they lost their top three receivers, including J.J. Ortega whiteside which yeah. is a massive loss, one of the best receivers in college football last year. Um, that's going to be tough. They should, Their offensive line should improve. Walker Little... Mm -hmm. Uh, the junior right tackle for the Cardinals, one of the best offensive linemen in the nation, touted as potential top-five pick in the 2020 draft. So, and, you know, we'll find out pretty early on what Stanford's about. They open home against Northwestern, then they go to USC, and then they go to Central Florida in the first three weeks, not to mention week four hosting Oregon. So, I mean, there's no time to figure it out. Stanford's got to go right away. There's no, you know, featherweights waiting in the wings. They've got four tough ones right out of the gate. So, I... I think Stanford's got a shot. I think they've got a lot to replace on offense that'll make it tough. But I mean, I, I think Stanford's got a shot to, to be really competitive again. They're going to be right there in the thick of things um, in the Pac-12 North this year.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, a really good point about how, how tough a schedule they set up for themselves this year, because last year against good teams is when they collapsed. Um, when we, right. when we look at the, uh, teams against S&P Plus, for instance, any team that was, I I think, like 30th or higher, they were 0-4 against, and any team that was like 32nd or lower, they were, you know, they won them all. And so it it really is something where they need to show that they are one of those um, teams that can play against teams of their same level. That's really where Stanford is this year. Um, You have to win the games against the guys that are as good as you, Um, because they've obviously proven that they can take out teams that they're supposed to beat. And, uh, you know, I think throughout David Shaw's tenure, he's shown that Stanford isn't going to lose to, you know, they're not going to play down to their competition. They're not going to lose against teams that, that have no business being in a game against Stanford. So it it really this season right. does all hinge on making sure that you take care of business against what really does yes line up as a tough as hell schedule to start their season.
1: Right. Yeah. And I I think that's you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the the schedule and how they play. That's the mark of a of good coaching is you don't lose games the teams you're not supposed yep. to lose to. That's how Stanford was still able to win nine games last year. Despite the fact that they were probably more of a seven win team. If you look at it on paper and you look at it statistically, yeah. they probably should have came out as seven and five in the regular season instead of, you know, beating four and winning nine in the bowl game. So I think that does it for them. Let's move on to let's move on to the ducks. And I even waiting to talk about the ducks.
0: I can't. Um,
1: I'm I might be higher on Oregon this year than even you are. So I'd love to get your thoughts on Oregon. What do you what do you got for me? How do you think they're gonna do?
0: Well, um I guess the one thing I'm sad about uh, moving East is that Pac-12 after dark is going to be a lot harder to keep up with (laughs) this year. I'll finally actually experience why people talk about that as a phenomenon um, because I'll definitely want to be up for every one of these Oregon games. Uh, Obviously it all starts with Justin Herbert coming back. As soon as he announced everything else, just sort of, you know, the puzzle pieces all kind of locked in. Um, because it was a great team coming back around him. Um, at the same time, I think just as important as Herbert is having uh Troy die back on off on defense. Um he's just been the heart and soul of that defense the past couple of years, and he's gonna be the the guy who really um sets the tone for that entire unit once again. Um, I'm also excited, you know, about uh, just the, the wealth of talent they have on uh, the offensive side of the ball. It's it's something where, uh, you know, they've had that there in the past couple years. Obviously, Oregon's always going to have offensive talent. But I think even with losing like a guy like Dylan Mitchell, being able to immediately plug in Jawan Johnson, you know, transferring from Penn State, um, I guess maybe the schools made a swap him for me. And I think Oregon came out better in that deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm i obviously high on the Ducks as well. I, I think they're a double-digit win team. Um, you know, I, I think everything has to... It really... The tone is going to be set in that first week of the season against Auburn. It really will. And we saw that last year with Washington as well. It's really, if you're going to make the college football playoff this season, you have to win that statement game out of conference against an SEC school.
1: Right, right. I, you know, Mario Cristobal is my guy. Like, I've been talking about him for years. I love the guy. I love what he's doing there. I mean, the fact that the town, that Oregon's already. Feeling like a contender again is a testament to how well he's done in just you know a little over a year now as 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 the boss, right? So yeah. he the what he's done on the recruiting trail has been remarkable. Like I, he's recruiting at you know frankly an SEC like level at Oregon, like one of the you always see all these Southern schools like Alabama, Clemson, Florida, whoever at the top of this at the recruiting rankings, and then randomly you, know, you got Oregon right there now because he's just pulling in talent, getting. Kayvon Thibodeau, for instance, oh, yeah. the you know number recruiting circuit's number one rated overall player in the country. Mm-hmm. What a massive get, holding off every other school in the country who had also offered him a scholarship. That was a massive win. But, I mean, on down the board, just a, a great class coming in. The scary thing is that this might be as bad as Oregon will ever be under first of all over the next few years with the talent they have coming in yeah. and they're going to be damn good in 2019 they're going to be damn good I mean this is a very good football team from the top down you got a ton of returning talent on both sides of the ball a lot of returning production on offense losing Dylan Mitchell early to the draft hurts but right Jawan Johnson coming from Penn State was a massive addition one of the biggest additions on the transfer market this year, I think, that really hasn't been discussed all that much. I feel like that's kind of flown under the radar. The big thing for Oregon for me, too, is they've got a great offensive line, a dominant yeah. offensive line. Panay Sewell coming back from an injury, Calvin Throckmartin, Dallas Wormack. I mean, they got all five returning starters on the offensive line, along with a guy, um, Brady Aolo, who also has starting experience. you got yeah. six starters on a five-man unit That are all very capable. So if someone gets hurt, you can throw another one in. That's going to help. And it doesn't hurt, you know, have CJ, a guy like CJ Verdell, who lit the world on fire as a true as a freshman last year. So I love the Ducks. I think they've got a good shot. Obviously, I'll be a big supporter in the um, kickoff classic in Arlington uh, at the end of August when they play Auburn. Uh, And, you know, that'll set the tone for the season. If they can go out there and earn a statement win early on, that's not only going to be big for the pollsters and everybody. That's a big confidence booster, regardless of whether Auburn turns out to be a legit contender or not this year. That's a huge confidence booster to go into a national stage like that and pull out that kind of win.
0: Undoubtedly. Um, I think and I think that game and the other big games on their schedule really key off how the defense responds to Andy Avalos coming in. I think that's the other big story of the off season for them is, um, you know, the switch in defensive coordinator, you know, Jim Levitt was there the past couple of years and we've, you know, we saw him really begin to turn things around in Eugene, um, start to have them looking like a, a decent unit for the first time since uh, Nick Aliotti's last years. And, I I I I think you know I think the switch if you're you know to lose a guy like Jim Levitt, uh, it, it that's going to be braced a lot better if you you're able to bring in a guy like Avalos. I think he was a great addition. You know he's al- always looked uh, you know like the up and comer who should be getting that next opportunity while he was at Boise State, and I think it's um, it, it's all. Um, contingent on how the unit responds early, and that's why I mentioned right away. I think Troy Die is a big key there for them, and how he's able to to get the rest of his unit to buy in.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's obviously the heart and soul of that defense, and if they can take a, a step forward there with all the talent they have on offense, and Oregon could be a team that really competes for the playoffs. So. Zach, let's let's hear it. Who do you got? Who you got in the Pac-12 North? I'm guessing you're going Oregon.
0: Yeah, Oregon is definitely uh, my top team. I think Washington is going to be right behind them. I'd put Stanford third, um, with Washington maybe tied for third. You know, I could do- definitely see both of them with uh, like two losses, three losses in Pac-12 play, and being there at the same spot. Cal obviously 5th, Oregon State in the cellar.
1: Well, we're going literally word for word then on on our on our picks for the Pac-12 North cuz I've got Oregon number 1 as well. I think Oregon Washington's a coin flip though. I think the Huskies are right there mm-hmm. um and it's kind of hard for me to pick Oregon because Washington does get the Ducks at home this year. Yeah. So that's a big advantage for Washington, but I with everything Oregon's got coming back, I think they have the more talented team. I I'd still like to see Jacob Eason in action before I'm ready to tout the to tout Washington as the Pac twelve favorite. So I go Oregon, Washington. i take Stanford third, Washington State fourth, Cal fifth, Oregon State sixth. I don't feel good about having Washington State fourth because I feel like I'm gonna feel stupid at the end of the season when they win nine or ten games and finish second or something like that in the Pac twelve North. But yeah. that that division is cutthroat. That's a one of the more like fascinating and tight races I think in the country it'll be really interesting to watch
0: yeah I definitely think it's one of the, the the deeper ones at the top of the division certainly if you take the top three teams out of any one of the divisions this year um it, it you're hard pressed to find one that has three that stack up that equally against each other well on that note we're going to take a quick break everybody um and when we come back we're going to be looking at the Pac-12 South So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. Uh, We're back from the break to talk with you about the Pac-12 South. Uh, This is a really wide open division this year. And John and I were talking before the break about, you know, sort of the hierarchy that everybody is looking at for this division this season. And so that really puts us uh, with Colorado to start with this season. Everybody is pretty much picking this team to finish sixth under their first year under Mel Tucker now that Mike McIntyre has been run out of Boulder. I, I know that you're probably you, you've mentioned that you're higher on Colorado than a lot of the pundits are. Um, why, why do you think that they're uh, probably better than a lot of people are suspecting, John?
1: Well, I think, Zach, I think we could probably both agree when you're talking about the Pac-12 South, you might as well put their, you know, put a list of the teams up on a dartboard and start throwing darts to figure yeah. out. Uh, I think Utah is probably the pretty clear favorite for most people, but two through six in any order would not surprise me. I don't think it would surprise you either. So the big reason I'm a little higher on Colorado, and not high enough to think that they're going to be a team that could potentially steal the Pac-12 South away, but it's LaVisca Chenault's return. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the best player, best overall players in the country was Dynamite last year, uh, racking up over 1,000 yards and six touchdowns in nine games. His injury really adversely affected Colorado's offense, and I think was the real reason they ended up coming up short from getting to bowl eligibility at the end of the year because their offense just really couldn't figure out much without his presence. Steven Montez is back at quarterback, so they got that kind of dynamite, quarterback to receiver duo one of the best in the entire country Mel Tucker's got the defensive pedigree that maybe he can get things rolling on that side of the ball but you and I have talked about that before too that it'll be interesting to see how good of a defensive mind Tucker is now that he doesn't have Nick Saban or Kirby Smart standing close by to correct any issues that he has uh, or might have so uh, there's a pretty well-known story about the Rose Bowl that Georgia played against Oklahoma a year or two or, or a year and a half ago I guess at this point now uh where you know they struggled mightily to stop Baker Mayfield and company in the first half of that game and then Kirby Smart took over defensive play calling in the second half from Tucker and you know things went a lot differently in the second half so yeah. we'll see I guess I I don't think Colorado is going to finish last in the division I do think they're going to be able to eke out bowl eligibility in Tucker's first season. I'm not convinced that he's going to have long-term success there. I think it's kind of an odd fit for him in Boulder, uh, but, I mean, he's definitely a good recruiter. We'll get some talent out there, so it'll be interesting to see um, what he can do. But I do think they have enough talent to get to a bowl game.
0: I think that's a fair, fair assessment. And I think you could say that about pretty much any team in the Pac-12 South is that six wins is a reasonable floor for every one of those teams. Um, You know, Colorado starts the season with their traditional rivalry game against the Rams. Um, They're at Mile High Stadium. And then uh, they get to host Nebraska, you know, another one of their big rivals um, from the big eight days. And I think that's going to be the real litmus test for how well this team competes against other Pac-12 South teams this year. Um, Nebraska is obviously looked at as an up-and-comer in the Big Ten West, and so they're going to be, you know, circling this game on the calendar as their own litmus test. And I think you know the team that comes out as the winner is is really going to set themselves up well moving forward. The one, you know, um, you mentioned Chenault and his injury issues. I think uh, getting him back and getting him back one hundred percent healthy is critical to Colorado's chances again. Um, you know, they started the year hot as hell last year, and everything just fell right off. And it, you know, a lot of that did stem from injuries because he he drew so much attention from defenses. Um, the, the other thing that I think is really interesting about Colorado that I want to point out is special teams, I think, are really one of those critical factors for them as well. A couple of years ago, when they were, you know, Pac-12 South champions, they finished 13th in, in special teams S&P Plus, And last year it dropped all the way to 89th. Um, a lot of that stemmed from having their starting punter go out with a broken collarbone, um, not quite being able to figure out which kicker they wanted to settle on um, in the place-kicking game, and I think this year they're coming back into it with a lot more solid idea of who's going to be the guy at each of these positions, and so I think just having some consistency at that at, at, in their special teams is going to go a long way toward helping them in the field position battle, helping them get points in situations where um, they've otherwise stalled out. And that, that's really going to be the, the deciding factor in my eyes as to whether or not they can get back to bowl eligibility.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up special teams. That's the often forgotten about facet of football. A lot of people focus offense, defense. Obviously, we focus mostly offense, defense on the podcast because that's the more interesting thing. But, you know, the difference between 13th and 89th and S&P Plus in terms of special teams is probably the difference in Colorado getting that sixth win last year and getting bowl eligibility. That probably was right there, the difference.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, even if they're 20 points higher, they get one or two more of those wins that were, you know, right. that, that in games that they were close. So, yeah, I, I I, well, it sounds like you're not looking at Colorado as the absolute bottom of the division. I think we're both in agreement that um, while they'll be a decent team, they're probably not in contention for the division itself. Um, another team I think that's going to be sort of fit that same mold of being a good team, having a real potential for bull eligibility, but probably not quite yet being there in terms of a Pac-12 South contender is Chip Kelly's UCLA Bruins. You know, this team last year in Chip Kelly's first season had its fits and starts. Um, we, you know, they they showed some signs of promise and I think this year, any ramp up for them is going to hinge around the continued development of Joshua Kelly at running back. Um, you know, he came on really strong and emerged as, uh, you know, the man in the backfield who UCLA has really needed the past few years. And I think that the running game and the inability to really figure out the running game was a big part of Jim Moore's downfall there at UCLA. And so I think that's um, something that I'm really looking forward to seeing that continued development in year two of of the Chip era.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of been Chip Kelly's calling card as a head coach. He always had dynamic running backs at Oregon. He seems to have the next in line with Joshua Kelly at UCLA. I think the big thing for the Bruins this year will be What kind of step does Dorian Thompson-Robinson take at quarterback if he's going to continue being Kelly's guy there, if he's able to do that? And he had a good spring. um, Seems to be some confidence that he's going to take a big step as a sophomore. And let's be fair, I mean, there were some growing pains for Kelly and Westwood last year. But also, you know, after starting out 0-5, UCLA looked a lot better over the second half of the season were really competitive, eked out three Pac-12 wins um, in the second half of the season, rolling over Colorado or rolling over California, beating Arizona, and then uh, beating USC, which is you know as you know USC wasn't great last year, but still getting that win in that rivalry game in year one is important. But they were also super competitive against Arizona State, played Stanford within a touchdown, played Washington within a touchdown. I mean, they weren't that far off from being probably a 6-6 six and six bowl team. So I think UCLA is going to be a bowl team this year. I think that'll be the next step. I don't think I'm quite ready to say, and some are projecting the Bruins to really start competing for the Pac-12 South <laughs> this year. But I think that it has more to do with Chip Kelly's reputation than the actual team they're going to field this year. Because I don't think they have the talent yet to seriously compete for the divisional crown, but I do think they're gonna be able to take a step and get to ball eligibility. And to be fair, they do have seventeen returning starters, which is obviously a good place for Kelly to start in year two.
0: Definitely. Um I I think the big thing for them as well is that non conference schedule does not line up easy. They open the oh, year at, at they you know they open the year at Nippert Stadium against a Cincinnati team that Uh, You know, when we looked at the group of five race, you projected them to win the entire American Athletic Conference. And I think we're both high on the Bearcats this season. So that's not a gimme game, you know, in in terms of getting to bowl eligibility. um, That's going to be a critical one for them. If they can pull off that win on the road against a Cincinnati team that is really good this year. Um, it will line up well for them. But then they also, you know, host Oklahoma this season. They're, uh, you know, in in the second weekend of September. And I think that... See, I I don't think they're going to win that game. I think how close they're able to play against the Sooners and how well they can, you know, especially the defense holds up against uh, Jalen Hurts and crew is going to be a really big... Thing to keep an eye on because if they can you know stymie that Sooners offense in any way you know if they can even slow it down and keep it below its season averages you know, that I'm sure are going to probably be fairly high as they have been in recent years for Oklahoma um, that's going to make a, a big difference and give them that confidence boost heading into Pac-12 play especially with a road trip to Washington State right out of the gate.
1: Yeah, and I mean, they're at Cincinnati and Oklahoma, but in between that, they got to play San Diego State at home, who has beaten their fair share of, you know, power five opposition over the last few years with Rocky Long. So there's no gimme games on a conference schedule for Kelly this year. There really isn't. And they open Pac-12 play right after those three at Washington State and at Arizona. So that's tough five-game slate to open the year. So if they can pull out two out of those five, they'll be in really good shape entering um, October at that point to really make a potential run towards the Pac-12 South crown if they're able to eke out two, if not three wins out of those first five games. Three wins, and I think you're talking about a legit contender Yeah. Um, in the Pac-12 South. But yeah, I think they'll probably hover around six or seven wins would be my guess, but they will get a bowl game really setting up potential for the Bruins to probably be the media darling and the favorite in the Pac-12 South heading into 2020.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's probably a fair way to read that. Uh, they definitely have that potential to, to steal a game or two here or there. Um, they're probably going to lose at least one of those two games against a group of five opponent. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I think there are going to be more fits and starts in year two of the Kelly era. It's, you know, not the the exactly what Bruins fans want to see, but I think they they'll see progress. They'll continue to see progress as we saw from the first half to the second half of last year. We'll continue to see the growth. And that's really all you can ask for given where that program was at when Chip Kelly first stepped in there.
1: Right. So and- Sticking in L.A. if you're if you're yeah uh, in that kind of mood, we can just go across town to USC. I think another team, uh, arguably maybe the most disappointing team in college football last year was USC, slipping to five and seven and missing out on a bowl game after it looked like Clay Helton really had things moving uh, for the Trojans after back to back New Year's Six bowl appearances. Uh, and a Pac-12 championship looked like USC was USC again, and then last year with a freshman true freshman quarterback and JT Daniels really took a big step back. The whole off season has been revolving around fixing the offense. You know, first off it was going to be Cliff Kingsbury before uh, the Arizona Cardinals came and offered him their head coaching job. They stuck with the air raid kind of style though, and went and hired Graham Harrell, uh, a Kingsbury. Uh, clone, essentially, a guy who was, you know, also a quarterback at Texas Tech, was a fast-rising coordinator at North Texas. They obviously have the plan of really attacking through the air this year, right, thinking Daniels uh, can take that leap, and really, Helton's really putting all his chips in the center of the table, assuming that Daniels is going to make that leap, and if he doesn't, it could be a, a pretty abject disaster for the Trojans, and I'm not sure that it's not going to be. I think JT Daniels Ultimately, will take a step forward, but I don't know, man. I I just don't know if it's going to be enough. Because what do you think, Zach? What do you think it takes for Clay Helton to retain his post heading into 2020? I don't know if there's a a coach in the country sitting on a hotter seat right now.
0: Boy, that is a spectacular question when you look at it. Um, You know, just kind of divorcing it from this specific season and everything that lines up, because fans don't really care where you're projected to be. They care about the, you know, the emblem on the side of the helmet, the name Uh on the front of the jersey. And, you know, you look at USC, you look at a team with that much tradition, you're supposed to be in the postseason every year. You're supposed to be competing for conference titles every year. And since the Pete Carroll era, it's been really rough for USC fans. Uh, Things just have not been at that sort of level that you would anticipate for a program of this caliber and tradition. So, you know, I'm looking at where they need to be. I'm Mm -hmm. hesitant to pin a specific, like, win total on what he has to do, but I think if he doesn't get to nine wins, it would be, it'd be rough. And, uh, you know, Fresno State, BYU um, should should both be wins for this team, but they do also have to go to Provo to play the Cougars, which is always a tough venue. Um, you know, they're at Washington, they're at Notre Dame, they're, you know, even in conference, they they play at Arizona State, which is another tough one. Um, As we talked about in the last segment, Cal is not going to be an easy team, an easy out, even if they're, you know, we're projecting them fifth in that division. It's fifth in a very deep division. Um, So yeah, I, I, and then, you know, even teams like, you know, they have to play Oregon in interdivisional play, they don't get out of that one. And, uh, and they also have to play Stanford, they get both of those games at home. But those are also still really tough outs. So, just looking at their schedule the way it lines up, I don't know that Clay Helton is there in 2020. I, I'll
1: just. No, the schedule is brutal. No, exactly. I mean, that's, I mean you just got some. There's no gimme games on that schedule. There's no week where you can feel like you can kind of take a deep breath and be like, okay. We're going to be fine this week. This one's, you know, this one's in the bag. There's not a single game. They don't even get Oregon State from the north or anything, you know. This is a brutal schedule, Zach. It really is when you really look at it. It is absolutely brutal. I don't think there's any way they pull nine games, and I think you're probably right on that kind of thinking that it probably takes something like that unless they win eight games and happen upon a Pac-12 South title. I don't even know if that would be enough because I think – Fans are really clamoring for USC to be a legit contender, not just in the Pac-12, but on the national stage again, particularly when there's a coach sitting out there who just retired for the <laughs> second time, that obviously USC fans are going to be pushing for that to be a thing, and maybe it would be. Maybe Urban Meyer would take USC at the end of the year if it ends up going that way. So, I I can't imagine I, it would take something miraculous for Clay Helton to to get out of this unscathed. It's a, it was a shock that Lynn Swan and company kept him yeah. after last season with as much as much vitriol from the fans wanting his you know pretty much his head on a pike. Yep. Um, and I think if you were taking odds for the most likely coach to be fired during the season, I would I would wager that Clay Helton would lead the pack.
0: Yeah, USC is really um, talk good at about, doing that. So,
1: yeah, I mean, you talk about before they're even out of September, they got to play Fresno State, Stanford at BYU, Utah at Washington. Yeah, I mean that's their first five games. It wouldn't would it shock you if they were one and four or something like that after those five?
0: It 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 wouldn't shock me if they were zero and five out of those first five.
1: Right, and if they start 0-3, for instance, if they lose to Fresno State, Stanford, and then BYU, that's it. Helton's gone at that yeah. point. Yeah, They're putting an interim coach in there. Clancy Pendergrass or Graham Harrell is going to take over as an interim coach at USC, and that's it. National Coaching Church is on from then on the rest of the season. So I, I don't think it's going to be a great year for USC. It would not shock me if the Trojans completely bottom out this year and end up sitting in the cellar of the Pac-12 South.
0: I think that's bold. I I think they have a lot of talent. And and, uh, so, yeah, I think if they do get to that point, there's no way Helton's there. Given the talent that they do have, you know, starting with JT Daniels, working through that receiving core, um, you know, working through a, a decent offensive line, going onto the defense, they have the players to be USC. And so it was really incumbent on having the coaching staff to turn these players into Trojans. And uh, that's obviously was the big story of the off season, you know, trying to get the right guy to, to mold this, especially the offensive talent into what it had, you know, into a sum that's greater than its parts. (laughs) and i think that's been the big thing for usc for the past couple of years they still draw talent they're still a great school for recruiting you can you know you yeah. can be bad at usc and still get kids who have been dreaming about going to usc their whole life who are right. going to go to usc and it right. and and because you get that kind of talent it really does hinge on the coaching and so harrell has to be the right guy um for that offense or yeah, heads are going to roll quickly. I
1: think think it was a smart move to kind of go towards that because if you look at kind of what they were doing last year, the air raids all predicated on quick, decisive passing game, right? You're getting the ball out quickly into your hands of your playmakers, of which USC has a plethora of. They have a lot of talent at receiver. Get the ball out quickly, get it in their hands, and let them do some work. And I think it would be unfair to not mention that they were competitive against some really good teams last year. I mean, they played Notre Dame to the wire at the end of the season, so they were right there with the potential to win that game. They beat Washington State uh, mm-hmm. ultimately just as much as Washington did, keeping the Cougars from winning the Pac-12 uh, North Division. So, I don't know, I just it's hard when you know that your coach is probably a sitting duck to have the proper motivation, I mean they want to play well for him, but you know it's going to take something miraculous for him to retain his post going into 2020 and with the way their schedule sets up at the beginning of the year, it's not going to take long for negativity to kind of go up if they lose that opener against Fresno State, I mean the whole season could spiral out of control after just one game
0: yeah, exactly that Fresno State game is a a huge what if? Because if they do lose that game, is there a reason to continue holding on? If you can't beat Fresno State, how can you reliably expect to beat every other team you have on a really tough schedule?
1: Right. Fresno State at the Coliseum, man. Yeah. Like, you can't, you cannot lose to a team like that as U.S. At USC, as USC's head coach, you cannot lose that kind of game, not with all the pressure in the world, not with an off-season spend talking up this whole new offensive revitalization that you've got planned. You cannot come out and lay an egg week one. That is the biggest game of Clay Helton's coaching career week one against Fresno. Lose that game, and everything's going to go spiraling downward.
0: Yeah, it feels kind of like the uh, Pat Hill era felt like in Fresno State, where he put, you know, Power Five coaches or you know back then AQ coaches on notice, um, and and really was a defining uh, role in getting some guys on hot seats, and that we could see the exact same thing this year. I, I think we've we've probably touched on uh, USC pretty well here. To, to shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to move East to the Arizona schools next. And, uh, starting with the Wildcats, Kevin, you know, both of these schools have second year head coaches. Um, Kevin Sumlin came in, uh, his first year last year and didn't make it to bowl eligibility. This was a team that had, um, a lot of hope given that Khalil Tate was back, you know, it it was there. And, um, you know, had the potential to get together with a coach like Kevin, someone who might be able to to better utilize his talents than Rich Rodriguez was able to. You know, in that last year of his tenure, but it wasn't like Rich Rod. I mean, there's a reason why Khalil Tate became a phenom, and it, it was in part because of the guy who was, you know, calling you know calling the shots there. And uh, there was some regression it, last year. And I don't think a lot of that stemmed from the coaching relationship so much as Khalil Tate just couldn't stay healthy. And so right. this this year, that's going to be the, the big question is, you know, Khalil Tate at his best is right there in the Heisman race. And if he's healthy for all 12 games this season and is able to, um, you know, play as well as we know he can play, Arizona is a legitimate contender for the Pac-12 South. Um, We've even talked about it in previous podcasts. If you know he goes lights out, and you know they, you know start up the their schedule lines up to start up the year five and zero, really quite easy. Um, We talked. Hey, hey,
1: hey! hey, Don't discount Hawaii.
0: That's fair. They do have to go to Aloha (laughs) Stadium. But other than that, like if you look at the rest of their games there, um, you know, through those first five, ending up four and one, you know, through that first month and change, you know, up to that Colorado game, uh, ending, you know, getting, getting to mid season four and two, five and one is a completely reasonable expectation for this Wildcats team, um, if Tate goes down again, though, if we see him dealing with more leg issues, ankle issues, and whatnot, it's it's much harder for the Wildcats to continue competing in that division.
1: Yeah, and to your point, depending on how the Hawaii game goes, they'll probably be favored in the first five games of the season, you know, because three of them come at home, one of them's against... Uh... Uh, a group of five school and then the other one's at Colorado who most people are pegging as, you know, the cellar dweller of the Pac-12 South. But it all, like you said, it all hinges on Khalil Tate. When he's healthy, he's one of the most fun players in college football. And I know everyone out there, maybe save for the folks in Tempe are hoping that he stays healthy all season long because he is so fun to watch. He is so dynamic in the marriage between him and Kevin someone has a chance to be something really really special. Mm-hmm. What I want to say about that too is it's not like Arizona was bad on offense last year. If you look at their total numbers, I mean, they were 24th overall in total offense last year. Yeah. So that's really good. Defensively they were 92nd. They were 121st against the pass. That's got to be where the progress really has to come to. A lot of the, you know, talk last season was the fact that Khalil Tate couldn't stay healthy and they couldn't do all that. But it's really hard to be the type of team that really competes uh, for a division in any conference in college football if you're giving up 270 yards a game through the air. If you're constantly just getting burnt, your secondary is constantly out of position, you're constantly watching receivers just run right past you like they were last season. It's hard. I mean, it's hard even with a dynamic quarterback like Tate who can score points in bunches like he does. Yeah. So that's got to be where they take a step forward. We talked about. I just talked about USC being one of the most disappointing teams in the country. Arizona was one of the more disappointing teams in the country. They were everyone's favorite dark horse to not just win the Pac-12 South, but potentially win the entire Pac-12 last year with someone coming in, teaming with Tate after the just incredible second half of the season he had had the year before. So I I agree with you. I think Arizona's another team that it's just so hard to peg. Like it, I wouldn't be shocked. If they ultimately won the Pac-12 South and played in the Pac-12 Championship game, I wouldn't be shocked if they finished last in the Vision. If something happened to Khalil Tate and they bottomed out, wouldn't surprise me either way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think they are one of those uh, those those teams that have the Jekyll and Hyde side to them, where they could be really good, they could be really bad. And I agree with you; it does hinge on a defense that was definitely abysmal last year. I think that's the nicest way to put it. They 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 were the reason that Arizona lost several of those games and didn't get to a bowl game.
1: Offensively too, with JJ Taylor back, I don't want to discount having that. If Tate's healthy, that backfield is as dynamic as any in the country. You got two potential thousand-yard runners with Tate and uh, Taylor back there, so I mean that could be just devastating for opposing Pac-12 defensive coordinators.
0: Oh, certainly. Um, and coming back to the defense, just quickly, you know they weren't good last year, but they might have grown last year. Um, among Pac-12 teams, both Arizona schools have some of the deepest returning defenses in in the conference. Um, Arizona is, I believe, eleventh in returning production nationally, and so we've talked about it in, in previous podcasts where. You know, you sometimes wonder, is it good to have a lot of returning production if that returning production sucked the previous year? (laughs) Um, And so that's definitely the X factor here is do those guys develop? Do they take that next step? And um, I I think if that unit, you know, a group of guys who has another year of experience under their belt can uh, continue to progress, that's going to make the difference here.
1: Right. Yep. I agree. It'll be, it'll be interesting. It'd be an interesting race if we want to shift the uh, shift gears to the other Arizona school, yeah. Arizona state. Um, it's funny because when you look at the two hires, both had coaching changes after the 2017 season, everyone applauded the Kevin someone hire at Arizona. Everyone just completely destroyed the Herm Edwards hire at Arizona state for the most part. So it's kind of interesting that Herm Edwards had the better year one. I don't think many people pegged that as possible. Um, And I mean, I think we both were the same. We both were pretty negative about Herm Edwards's prospects. And I want to tell you something, Zach, I have not changed my mind. I am still not sure that Herm Edwards is going to work out long-term in Tempe. And I think Arizona state is going to take a pretty significant step back this year. Maybe that's, Wishful thinking because I like to think I'm right about everything and I was wrong about Arizona State last year. Um, but he did have uh, the advantage of having an accomplished quarterback last year and Manny Wilkins, who had already proven himself as a really good player. And then Nikhil Harry is one of the best receivers in the country last year. They were really able to lean on in the receiving game. Both of those guys are gone. There's no crutch left for him um that way. So it's all about talent that he's developing himself at this point. And it'll be interesting, you know, obviously he's got Eno Benjamin, who's one of the best running backs, not just in the Pac-12, but in the entire country, can still lean on him some. But what happens at quarterback, is Dylan Sterling Cole going to be able to kind of replicate the production that Manny Wilkins was able to do? The big thing with Wilkins is he rarely turned the ball over. He only threw six interceptions last year, uh, which was really good. That helped um Arizona State lead the Pac-12 in turnover margin and finish 11th nationally in turnover margin last year. If that number changes significantly, you're talking about easy change from a 7-win team like they were last year. If they finished a moderately worse in turnover margin, they could easily lose three or four more games, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 and, um, you know, the first two games of the season, easy for them. Kent State, FCS, Sacramento State. They should have no problem winning those two at home. After that, it, it could be a toss-up. They could lose their next 10 games after that. It, I, I feel weird. Okay. Check that. They could lose nine of their next 10 games because I don't think they're losing to Oregon State. Um, that said, they're playing them at Razor Stadium. So, right. So... There is a possibility they could lose all ten of those games. They have to go to East Lansing to play Michigan State, a Michigan State team that I think will be a decent, decent group this year. Well, um,
1: oh, no spoilers of the Big Ten preview. We got to have them come back.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I'm with you. I don't know that Herm Edwards is. Um, I you know he caught lightning in a bottle that first year. I think all the the tools lined up well. And at the same time, we say he caught lightning in, in a bottle with a 7 and six team. That's the other side of it. Right. Like, like if we're going to praise him that much when they got to six wins, it really kind of speaks like if that's your ceiling, if that's what we're going to celebrate you for, you're not going to be in, in Tempe that long. Um, I don't, you know, that's the sort of thing you could have just kept Todd Graham around to give you every year.
1: Right. Literally no difference. Roughly the same exact thing Todd Grant was doing it every – or Todd Grant was doing it every single year. So, yeah, I I think they're going to take a step back. Honestly, like you talked about the schedule, obviously they'll, they, they'll start 2-0 and uh, with relative ease, and that'll help easing in Dylan Sterling Cole, being able to play Kent State and Sacramento State the first two weeks. But then it gets brutal. I mean, like I said, it's the Pac-12 is so wide open, and there's so many – You know, maybe no, we'll talk about this, I guess, in a few minutes, but no maybe elite, elite teams, but a lot of really good quality football teams that are just going to eat each other alive all season long. So, yeah, yeah, Arizona State, I I think this year we're going to start actually seeing the decline a little bit. But to be fair, if we're, you know, wanting to look at both sides of the coin, he's also recruiting a lot better than I figured he would. Um, the, the Sun Devils pulled in a really good recruiting class uh, in his first full cycle. A lot of talented guys going to be coming in, so he'll be interested on in how he's able to develop that talent, and if Arizona State's able to take the leap that they wanted. Because like you said, with Todd Graham, they're winning seven games every year, but they weren't getting to the upper echelon of the Pac-12. like They want to be consistently, like they have the potential to be consistently. So, you know, we'll see. I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be regression in Tempe this year, though.
0: I think that's fair. One team that probably isn't going to regress, and this is a team that everybody has seemed to love coming into the season, is Utah. Um, We've talked about underrated coaches. I have to name-drop Kyle Whittingham there as well because he, you know— just how we, you know, we talked about David Shaw stepping in for Jim Harbaugh. I think it's the exact same thing there. Urban Meyer takes, you know, Utah to, uh, you know, become the first non-AQ school to reach a BCS Bowl in 04, and then he's off to Florida. And, you know, Whittingham stepped in and has just absolutely kept this team at at the same level, if not higher. You know, the reason they get to that invitation to create the Pac-12 in the first place out of the Pac-10 and, you know, elevate from non-qualifying status to a power five level isn't because of what Meyer did with that team. That was way far in the past. It was all because Whittingham continued to build this team into a sustainable year over year powerhouse in the Mountain West that's what made them attractive as a Pac-12 member or to become a Pac-12 member. And I don't think any of that changes, you know, Utah is, you know, right there in the mix in terms of teams that could win this entire conference. You know, I think we lead heavily on the Pac-12 North just because that race feels deeper. You know, it feels like it's heavier at the top on that side. Um, and with Utah, it's like, which team is going to rise up and challenge the Utes this season, which is really a testament to where Utah is at more than where the rest of the Pac-12 South is at.
1: Right. And, you know, I I love what you talked about with Kyle Whittingham, because I think Urban Meyer gets a lot of the credit for what Utah is today, but Whittingham's had so much success spanning now two different conferences going from the Mountain West to now into the Pac-12 and really having Utah as one of the you know, best programs in the Pac-12 at this point. So getting Tyler Huntley back healthy is big. But Jason Shelley stepped in last year and performed more than admirably as yeah. a as a true freshman last year. So they know they've got two capable signal callers. Zach Moss is a dynamic running back. Uh, they've got really all their returning production at receiver back as well. And then Whittingham's defenses are always really, really good, always very competitive, always very... Uh, opportunistic, so I think the Utes are easily, in my opinion, the Pac-12 South favorite. They also benefit from the fact uh, that they don't draw Stanford, they don't draw Oregon from the Pac-12. when um, the Pac-12 North, they've got to go to Washington, but they you know have the good fortune of drawing Oregon State, uh, which is a big um, advantage because that should be a win, and they get Washington State at home, so. Yeah, the schedule lines up pretty good, I think, for Utah to to really make a run. Um, like you said, whittinghams a, he's a fantastic coach. He's a coach that doesn't get nearly as much credit as he deserves to get. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Utes, there's only been, I think, UCLA is the only team in the Pac-12 era to repeat as Pac-12 South champion. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that we got a really good shot to see that for uh, the second time with Utah uh, grabbing the pack 12 south once again.
0: I think I think that's really fair, and I think you know a big part of that is just uh, you know Utah is always going to be great on special teams. They've been a top ten team each of the past five years. You know they're going to be sound defensively. Um, you know uh, especially with that a that, uh, really strong defensive front, really great play at defensive tackle, and then you have Bradley and A at defensive end, who's just one of the you know the top the top rushers in the country um you know he he gives quarterbacks fits and i think that's um, really where it's going to stand is uh the question of who's going to get who's going to get to tote the rock who's going to get to sling the ball around for that offense um will it be Huntley will it be Shelley i think that's the only you know, if there's a huge question mark for this team this year, that's that's the one. Is which which passer is going to to get the starts?
1: Right. So I think we're probably both in agreement. Then we've got Utah, yep. winning the Pac-12 South. Um, for me, after that, to, to kind of wrap this up with this, I two to six. Like I said, it's kind of a dartboard throw. I think number two, I've got Arizona. I think Khalil Tate's going to have a pretty big year. I think the the Wildcats are gonna jump up to number two. I've got um UCLA third, Colorado four, USC five, and I've got Arizona State six in the Pac twelve. Wow. Um,
0: yeah, I I I, again dartboard throwing balls in the air and juggling them. That's exactly what two for six through six is there. So yeah, Utah for me I see Utah first I see, if Tate is healthy, I see Arizona being a good second. If he isn't healthy, I'm honestly, I'm less skeptical about USC than you seem to be. So I would put either Arizona or USC second or third. And that really depends on whether Tate's healthy. I'd put UCLA fourth. I'm going to put Arizona State fifth and then Colorado sixth. Is really the way I see that shaking out. So I, and again, you 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 could you could roll the dice and they could come up however, and I wouldn't be shocked.
1: No, 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 no. I I I don't know. I mean, I, I would the only team I could see that I am confident to say is not going to finish last is Utah. After that, yep. no idea. <laughs> they exactly. could be any of the any of the other five teams could finish dead last and completely bottom out, and I'd be like, yep, yeah, that, That figures. That makes sense. There's definitely a reason that happened.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you there. Well, on that note, we're going to take one last quick break, everybody. And when we return, we're going to look at uh, how we think the Pac-12 championship game is going to go based on our uh, divisional predictions. We're going to look at a couple of uh, player of the year projections, and we're going to look at whether any of these teams actually have a shot at the college football playoffs. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, for our last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast. We've been looking at the Pac-12 race this week in our 2019 college football season preview. Over the last couple of segments, we broke down the Pac-12 North and then the Pac-12 South, and we gave you our projections of who's going to end up in the Pac-12 championship game. It sounds like we're both in agreement that it looks like it's going to be Oregon against Utah this year. Um, So, John, how do you think that Pac-12 championship game matchup is going to shake out? And who do you think is uh, the favorite in that one?
1: You know, Utah got the better of Oregon last year um, getting that game at home in the regular season. But I think Oregon's going to ultimately come out on top in the Pac-12. I think they would be the favorite going into it depending on thing go, how things go, obviously. But I think the Ducks. I've got the Ducks as the overall Pac-12 champion, although, I mean, Utah's definitely got a shot, and I don't want to discount their ability to ultimately capture the Pac-12 as well. But I, I've got Oregon, I think, coming out of the, the tougher division that'd be more battle-tested coming into the Pac-12 championship game, and I think that's something that, you know, you can't really discount for sure. So I'd I take the Ducks. I, I've got Oregon, I know that'll make you happy.
0: Yeah, I'm standing there right with you, beaming, beaming, you know, ear to ear, because I really do think this is Oregon's year again. You know, it it, it felt like during the Chip Kelly era that that was Oregon's year every year. And even, you know, at the beginning of Mark Helfrich's tenure before, you know, Chip's guys started peeling off and it came down to whether he was able to recruit well enough to continue that dynasty going. I, I think we've seen some really great teams in Eugene over the past decade, and I think this one stacks right up with them. Obviously, it always starts on offense with the Ducks, but that defense is great as well. You know, I mentioned Die when we were talking about the Ducks, but I think also just that secondary um, you know, they have a really they've always had a really great ball hawking secondary. They're sort of a bend but don't break unit. There's somebody who's gonna give up some big plays, but they're also just kind of gonna run the knife into you by by, you know, pulling off a drive killing interception. And I think uh Thomas Graham Jr. really is the heart of that group this year and I could totally see him ending up as an all American.
1: Right. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Zach Thinking about it, too, do you think Oregon's got a legitimate shot at the college football playoff? Do you think there's any other Pac-12 team that could potentially end up in the playoff this year?
0: You know, I think if Oregon pulls it off against Auburn in the opener, um, the sky's the limit. I I think I I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, It was the same thing with Washington last year where, you know, you get that season opener that really can kind of make or break how everybody sees the Pac-12 for the rest of the year. And I think that game this year is Oregon-Auburn. And, um, you know, if the Ducks pull that off, I could see them being, you know, a one-loss team at most by the time they get to the end of the season. And if that happens, we've obviously seen... uh, the college football playoff selection committee um, downgrade Pac-12 teams with losses vis-a-vis other power five conferences in the past. But I think the way Oregon's, you know, the way Oregon's schedule lines up, the fact that they play such a big statement game right out of the gate, sets them up to put themselves high enough in the the national consciousness to do it. That said, um, you know, I think, Whoever emerges out of the Pac-12 North, if it is not Oregon, if it is Washington, one of the Washington schools or Stanford, it, it, it's going to be a really rough division. So that's really the question mark is they can't have more than one loss. I think given how strong the Pac-12 North is, if any of those teams get to the end of the year and win the conference at 12-1, and one, they have a shot of getting into the field because you, you will have had to have run through probably three ranked teams in your own division to get there.
1: Right, and I think you bring up several good points there, particularly with, I think the Pac-12 gets kind of unfairly pegged as kind of a bottom-tier Power 5 conference. And, I mean, we just talked about all these teams. There's some really quality teams in the Pac-12 this year, you know, not just in um, the Pac-12 North, but obviously the Pac-12 South with with Utah, but the Pac-12 North is a loaded division. I think you hit the nail on the head. The reason I don't think you're going to end up with a Pac-12 team in the playoff this year is because that division is going to cannibalize itself. Yep. I think it's going to be really difficult for anyone to get out of that division with less than two losses just because of the talent. Because You talk about the top four, you talk about the Washington schools, Oregon and Stanford. And that's not to mention like we talked about at the beginning with a Cal team yep. who could easily be a big spoiler and knock off a team like a Washington or an Oregon and derail the Pac-12's opportunity to get into the playoff because of a loss like that, even if Oregon's able to go at the beginning of the year and beat Auburn. So I think that's what you ultimately end up having. I've got Oregon winning, but I think they're going to end up with two losses in the Pac-12 just because the, the conference is so deep. There's so many quality teams week to week. It's so hard to escape unscathed. Uh, With that many talented teams and with that many tough games, they've got to go play. But, I mean, Oregon, I think, ends up in the Rose Bowl. I don't see a Pac-12 team making the playoff. But I think there's contenders. I think Washington, Oregon, both are legitimate contenders. Maybe Stanford, if some things go right, with Costello. But I think Washington and Oregon are both legitimate playoff contenders. I just think that the conference is honestly too tough this year. I think there's... Too many good teams. I think that's ultimately going to be the downfall for the for both of those teams.
0: I, I think it's fair, but I, I I agree with you. I think the Ducks and the Huskies are are the most complete teams in the Pac-12 this year, um, in terms of you know all all phases of the game, and also in terms of the coaching that they have obviously Oregon's X factor in that regard is how Avalos, you know, adjusts to his first year uh, coaching that defense in Eugene. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm with you there. I, I think that this is, uh, div- you know, the North in particular is a div- I, I shouldn't even say the North because both divisions are ready made for everybody beating up on one another. And, you know, any one of those teams being able to, pardon my language, but kick the other's ass on any given Saturday. And so, um, yeah, I'm with you there. I I think it really does um, come down to one of those teams really stepping up and separating itself to have any shot at the playoff. Because, you know, recent history has shown us that when it comes to the benefit of the doubt weighing you know, multiple one or two lost teams against one another, the Pac-12 is not going to get that benefit.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that's going to be going to be it. So if we want to wrap everything up, Zach, players of the year, I think in the mm. Pac-12, offense, defense, who you got?
0: You know, I wanted to go with two ducks. Um, I, think, I I think I think Justin Herbert is definitely going to win offensive player of the year. I think coming back, he's just he's the quarterback who we can have the most confidence talking about this year in terms of his track record, his potential, um, what he brings to the table and how he fits in with the other moving parts on that offense. Um, Obviously, you know, Jacob Eason has the talent, but we haven't seen him do it with that group. Um, KJ Costello, you know showed last year that he can be the man, but he's also, you know, lost some some parts there that it's going to be interesting to see how he steps up with a new group of receivers and some other question marks around that unit. Um. So yeah, I have Herbert as my Offensive Player of the Year. And I wanted to go with a duck, but I really think Bradley and at Utah, I mentioned him when we talked about the Utes and he is a defensive end that I could see being among the best in the country. I I think he'll be a consensus All-American at that position, Um, even with the the wide range of talent there is around the country. I could see him uh, getting that nod. And uh, just really having a monster year, especially if, as we have projected Utah into the Pac-12 championship game, I think he'll be a big part of that.
1: Those are great picks. And, you know, it's funny you were talking about some of the quarterbacks. How deep is the crop of quarterbacks in the Pac-12 this year? Herbert, Costello, Easton, three guys we talked about, potential first-round picks. Mm-hmm. That's not to mention Khalil Tate. That's not to mention Tyler Huntley. That's not to mention JT Daniels, who was an all-world recruit, one of the highest-ranked quarterback recruits coming out of high school in the last five or ten years or so, loaded at that position. So you didn't want to be a homer and go two ducks. I'll do it. I'll go two ducks because I don't have a dog in the fight. I think I agree with you, Justin Herbert, as the offensive player of the year in the conference, especially with me thinking Oregon's going to win the Pac-12, it would make sense if they do that for Herbert to be the guy that leads the charge and to win that. And then Troy Die for me on the other side of the ball for Oregon. I've got him as the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, although I like Bradley Anae a lot. Um, if you would have picked Dye, I probably would have picked Anae just so we could have been a little bit different on these picks. So I think those are the two leading candidates. But I don't want to discount, you know, with Herbert, obviously, I don't want to discount the other guys that are in contention, not just the quarterbacks. So there's a lot of skill positions out oh, yeah. in this conference. Eno Benjamin of Arizona State can yep. end up, Not finishing in the cellar has a really good shot. Zach Moss at Utah, another really talented runner. Um, J.J. Taylor at Arizona. LaVisca Chenault obviously has the opportunity. Just a lot of really quality talent on down the list in the conference. Joshua Kelly maybe even at UCLA would be a fun dark horse if the Bruins take a big step forward. So a lot of talent in this conference. Pac-12 football in 2019 is in a very, very good spot. It's going to be a very fun year in the league. I'm looking forward to exchanging messages with you at 2am for me, 3am for you while we both watch Pac-12 after dark.
0: Certainly. Um, Yeah, I think this is definitely a league that if you haven't been staying up in recent years and, and, uh, you know, uh, suffering a little bit of, uh, sleep deprivation on your Sundays, this is the year to start doing it. And, uh, I'll be right there suffering with the rest of you because I'll be doing it from Pennsylvania this year, um, and for the the next several years to come, as I am there at uh, state college. So, I uh, yeah, I I, I just want to reiterate. These are going to be fun races this year. These are a couple of really great division races. And even if they do beat up on each other and none of these teams get into the college football playoff, I think we need to just disabuse ourselves of the notion that not putting one team into the playoff um, suddenly makes your conference a lesser conference. Um, whether you're Power Five or otherwise, because for me, what that says is you got to watch eight great teams instead of one dominant one, and that's really the way the Pac-12 looks for me this year.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I think it's one of, it's maybe the most interesting race. There's no clear cut team you can look at. There's no you're looking at the SEC, and it'd be a shock if it's not Alabama or the ACC with Clemson, Oklahoma, and the Big Twelve. The Pac-12 is just. It's open. It's open for someone to jump up and take it. And it's not open because, you know, maybe in the case of the Pac-12 South, you could say because there's not a lot of quality teams, there's a lot of mediocre teams. But in the Pac-12 North, you're talking about a lot of really quality teams. And that's the reason it's wide open, because there's a lot of talent, because there's so many teams that are good enough on any given year to take the conference as a whole and maybe even win the Rose Bowl, if not make the college football playoff.
0: I am totally there with you just to wrap it all up. I hope you all have tons of fun watching PAC 12 football this year as well. Uh, and, uh, next week we will be back to talk about the big 10 race as we continue to do our sweep across the country, uh, culminating in the last two, uh, the conferences with the last two champions. So have a wonderful rest of your week. We'll be back here with you next Wednesday talking Big Ten football uh, as we gear up for the 2019 season. It's getting closer and closer. Hope you're all getting excited. Have a great week.